So Stanley Druckenmiller, a multi-billionaire macro investor who's made some famous plays with the likes of George Soros, specifically his bet against the British pound. And he has a stark warning for investors and, well, for everyone, in which he's been ringing the alarm quite dramatically on the Fed balance sheet, on the debt crisis, and as to what is going to happen in regards to potential default, but most importantly, the interest expense on the debt, in which it seems that we do have incompetent leaders in charge right now. We're stoking the debt to astronomical highs whilst totally ignoring the capabilities of potentially repaying this debt. It seems quite important to me. So let's check out this brand new interview which nobody in the history of the world has actually released before. So this is an exclusive one, so I hope you enjoy. So let's give it a listen and I'm going to interrupt every now and then and also provide my commentary in regards to the debt crisis and, and, and what this really means going forward. So here's the chart. How big would this be? Well, if interest rates were 5%, interest rates every year would be as big as the entire COVID relief of 2020. The entire thing, but every year forever. As the chart shows, now this is using CBO estimates. These are not mine, I didn't make them up. Um, this is using 4% interest rates. The interest rate bill goes from 8% of outlays now to 27% in 2050. This is a nightmare for future economic growth, investment, and productivity, and of course you, the future taxpayer. Let me put some numbers to that. If you add up currently the health care spend plus Social Security plus interest, it's 68% of tax revenues. By 2040, on the CBO chart, not mine, it'll be 100% of all taxes. Just spending for seniors, and just the interest. By 2052, it'll be 117%. Taxes will be 117%. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> the, the, the spending for seniors and, and interest alone will be 117% of revenues. So nothing left for defense, nothing for NIH, nothing for DARPA, none of that stuff. So here's the punchline. It's time that we let go of the false pretense that cutting entitlements is a choice. It's not a choice. Either we cut them today, or we will have to cut them much more tomorrow. As if the irresponsible behavior wasn't enough, around 15 years ago, the Fed simultaneously decided to start courting asset bubbles. For those of you who've read me, you knew I wasn't gonna let the Fed get away without me firing at them before this speech was over. Around the time I was here, this is two years, I'm sorry, 10 years ago, Ben Bernanke embarked on QE2, another round of rapid expansion of the Fed's balance sheet. The chairman feared a period like the 1930s and wanted to buy insurance to avoid deflation by not only keeping policy rates at zero, but also by reducing long-term interest rates. He assured everyone this would be a temporary measure. I quote, Monetization would require a permanent increase in the money supply to pay the government's bills through money creation. What, we've, what we're doing here is temporary measure that will be reversed so that at the end of this process, the money supply will be normalized, the Fed's balance sheet will be normalized, and there will be no permanent increase, either in money outstanding or in the Fed's balance sheet. Whoops. 
Since then, and despite these confident words, and several periods of strong growth with high inflation, which I've already shown you, the Fed never felt the need to meaningfully reduce its balance sheet. The balance sheet of the Fed today stands at just below $9 trillion, or 10 times as large as before the financial crisis. I repeat, 10 times. This is what he said he was going to do, normalize. This Fed has enabled risk behavior from investors, banks, and the government. It has driven unprecedented asset bubbles in both breadth and magnitude. This is a chart I don't need to explain. The tech frenzy, the crypto craze, SPACs, the search for yield by investors, and yes, also by regional banks, while it has truly been an everything bu bubble, nothing symbolized it more than Dogecoin, <laughs> which started as a joke, literally as a joke, and reached a market cap of, anybody know? 80 billion. 80 billion for a joke uh, crypto coin. As I have repeatedly said, central banks should be in the business of balancing rather than fueling asset prices or risky behavior. Some of the costs of the Fed's loose policies are now apparent to all. Inflation has become part of our dinner conversations. So have bank runs. Unfortunately, by still owning a large amount of government debt, the Fed continues to create the false illusion that it can help our fiscal problems. Take the spring of 21. It was obvious then that we were not only avoiding a deep hole, but the economy was already booming and we were developing an inflation problem. It was so obvious that even I predicted it right here two years ago. Bizarrely, the Fed kept their foot on the gas and Congress kept spending after it was clear the recovery was well in place and booming. Congress spent another $3 trillion bringing their COVID total to $5 trillion, with the Fed financing over 60% of all issuance. Powell's Fed acted as a great enabler for fiscal excesses. Had it not been for one senator, Joe Manchin, they would have spent another $3 trillion. Trying to correct the biggest mistake in Fed history, in the last year they have now raised rates 500 basis points in one year. Better late than never, well, I guess. Still, at the first kinds of trouble a month ago, Silicon Valley Bank, what do they do? In four days, they undid all the QT progress they had made in six months. Uh, <laughs> this asymmetric Fed response is what feeds the lack of serious structure, structural action in D.C. from both sides of the aisle. It allows the Biden administration and Congress to avoid having to address our long-term dilemma that I've presented. It helps the Republican House talk a tight budget while leaving entitlements off the table, when we all know there's not enough money unless you go after entitlements. It allows the Biden administration to astonishingly suggest the need to increase the rate of spending and label Republicans' already timid proposals as wacko. Who's the wacko, Mr. President? It is hard to overstate the myopic absurdity of the current policy and the predicament we find ourselves in. To conclude, I greatly admire your generation's focus on the long-term implications and the ability to think ahead about climate change and your willingness to take action. I urge you 
to take action against the bipartisan myopic abuse of our seed corn at the expense of future investment and growth. American exceptionalism and innovation have been on its display in my entire career. We led the PC revolution. We led the development of the internet. We led the move to mobile. We led the move to cloud. We led the move to, in blockchain. And now we're leading in generative AI. Indeed, the cover story of The Economist two weeks ago, riding high, documented the astonishing success of American capitalism in the last 30 years. Further delay in addressing the fiscal gap threatens the future of us not riding high, but rather sinking into malaise, decay, and the end of the American dream. It will embolden autocracies in places like China and Russia, and tragically risks the lack of wealth to make sufficient investments to address existential crises like climate change and a lack of growth to afford programs for the least well-off among us. Thank you. So the good news is US economic growth has historically outpaced the level of debt, and which is basically the fundamental question one needs to ask in relation to this question. So this is the fundamental question one needs to ask in relation to debt. Is the debt of today going to be outpaced by the growth of tomorrow? It's very, very simple. The US debt was 258.6 billion in August 1945, but the economy outgrew that in a few years and GDP more than doubled by 1960s. Obviously, this was in a period of economic boom. And Congress today, it seems, do believe, and, and does believe really, I assume that the, the, the debt of today is going to be outpaced by the growth of tomorrow, whether that's from a technological front or potentially uh, this very unlikely notion in reference to cutting spending, in which I don't seem, think is plausible at all. But there are basically a few main ways in which one can uh, really outpace the debt and thus mitigate this problem. And some debt most definitely is great and can allow for investments within to the future. However, the issue really is the capabilities of repaying this debt and which is calling into question now. And Stanley Druckmiller specifically notes, as we'll get to momentarily, uh, the, the dangers of the interest expense on the debt, and which is just going to be astronomically high. And when you consider these, what I believe are absurd policies in relation to climate change and this supposed net zero, which is basically a conspicuous plan to remove us from ultra cost effective and efficient energy, namely fossil fuels, in which hypothetically is, is, is harming the, 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 the danger the virgin planet, in which I dispute majorly. And thus, they're going to aim to transition us towards net zero, they call it, and which is this notion of removal of all fossil fuels, which, by the way, makes up 80% of the overall energy supply of today. Only 3% are by renewable energies, and you really believe by 2030 or whatever it is that we're going to instantaneously remove all fossil fuels in an attempt to save the hypothetical virgin planet and transition towards intermittent, dilute, unstorable, incredibly costly, solar and wind. And you can see in Germany over the past 10 years in which they've implemented this strategy, namely the Energy Winder Plan. This has contributed towards a lovely, a nice little cherry on top, a doubling within energy prices. The share of renewables has increased from 7% to 35%. And guess what? The funny thing is, fossil fuel market share in Germany has dropped one percentage point from 81% to 80%. And that's due to the necessity and consideration of the unreliability of solar and wind, due to the unavailability of storage, the dilution, so on and so forth, you need to build a, a parallel energy system in which supplements the so-called renewable energy, namely solar and wind, to allow for reliability. And within the case of Germany, this is the biggest, going to be the biggest investment since unification. It's going to cost just, just under 600 billion by 2030. And when you think about 
what it's actually doing now in consideration of the failure for energy security into the just comical share of fossil fuels in which has just dropped one percentage point despite tens of billions of dollars going into these subsidized idiotic renewables in which are diluted and can't be stored. I think it's just an absurdity. The point that I'm making is that if we are really going to go forward with these plans of absurd net zero, so on and so forth, this is going to be incredibly costly beyond belief. Goldman Sachs did a report, I believe in 2018, in which they stated that just for the electrification infrastructure for charging networks, that is going to cost, I believe it was $10 trillion, their estimation was, or, or, or I think it was 10% of, of, of US GDP or something absurd, just an absurd amount of money. And to think that this won't have any pushbacks is just ridiculous beyond belief, and which is why I'm very critical of these so-called environmentalists who love, it seems, renewable energy. And they believe that everyone by, you know, next, next, next week is going to be you know, fully electrified, which is obviously an absurdity. The point that I'm making is it doesn't seem to me uh, plausible at all that we're cutting spending. Um, and what is going to happen is, 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 in my opinion, raising taxes and growing the economy faster, hopefully th through productivity. But I, I, I speculate as to if that will even occur um, as, 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 as kind of optimistically as many suggest. And I disagree with some of those suggestions. Regardless, the federal government, according to Stanley Druckenmiller, is charged interest for the use of lenders' money in the same way that the lenders charge an individual interest for car loans or mortgages. How much the government pays in interest depends on the total, total national debt and the various securities interest rates. As of 2020 to August, it cost just under six, 700 billion sorry, to maintain the debt, which is 12.6% of the total federal spending. And the national debt has increased every year over the past 10 years. Interest expenses during this period have remained fairly stable due to low interest rates and investors' judgment that the US government has a very low risk of default. But in recent increases in the interest rates and inflation, this is now resulting within increased interest rate expenses upon the debt, which is obviously a very bad thing. And economists are now debating as to if this spending is sustainable. The US finances the debt by selling bonds, bonds at auctions, and the demand has traditionally been high due to the size of the economy and the historical stability of the government. But the cost to finance the debt is expected to be almost $400 billion in 2021, and to increase to $665 billion by the end of the decade, according to CBO estimations. And that money, by the way, is going to be spent on the interest and not the principal, which is just very, very hard to swallow. That is a big one. And Druckenmiller has spoken about and warned about the dangers of the debt crisis and the inability to repay debt many times in the past. And he stated just last year, I believe, a few months ago, that he's going to be stunned if we don't have a recession in 23. I don't know the timing, but certainly by the end of 2023. I will not be surprised if this is larger than the so-called average garden variety, Druckenmiller said at CNBC's recent event. I don't rule out something really bad. So we're getting to the point now where the interest expense on the debt is so high that it's going to eat up our ability to basically service the next generation. And I'm not even sure about the current one. I would know, by the way, that CBO estimations have been historically um, slightly naive. And actually, it's turned out that their estimations have been slightly under in comparison to what has actually occurred. So, so, so there's the potential, really, for the interest expense upon debt to be incredibly high, far higher than estimations in which we have by CBO. Let's listen to what Druckenmiller said just a few months ago at the CNBC event. But if you look at, at the reversal I just talked about, and you use the CBO estimate, which is rates at 3.8%, which I think, frankly, is, a, is pretty optimistic, um, given all the things we've talked about. Um, by 2027, the interest expense alone on the debt eats all health care spending. By 2047, 
it eats all discretionary spending. So we're now getting into fiscal dominance. By the way, by 49, it eats also security. We're getting to the point now where the interest expense on the debt is so high that it's going to eat up our ability to basically service the next generation. I'm not even sure about the current one. So by the way, just going back to these four principles in terms of the potential for repaying debts, you have cutting spending, raising taxes, growing the economy faster and shifting spending. And I think that in light of the age of industrial, and I think we're entering into away from the industrial age towards the information age, which is basically characterized by the cyber economy. And tell me why a young person who makes money on the internet, let's say, who has a business within the cyberspace is going to be, you know, is going to want to be placed within a nation such as the UK or work within a place such as London, in which you have incredibly high costs associated with living expenses, so on and so forth. It doesn't seem like a very optimistic lifestyle if you ask any young person. And the point that I'm making is that thanks to the cyber economy, we are now becoming freed from geographical tyranny. Meaning that thanks to the cyber economy, in which you can have a business within the cyberspace that is not dependent on one area at all, one has the capabilities to make money within the cyber economy, and thus to be geographically free as to where they work and where they live. And I think smart people have realized that the information age is here. And smart people have realized the capabilities of leverage on the internet. And smart people, I don't believe, are going to want to live in an area such as the UK or the US, let's say, in which in the future, according to Stanley Druckenmiller, is going to have incredibly high taxes due to the necessity of repaying the debt. While simultaneously, I mean, in the UK, the road's terrible, the NHS doesn't work, so on and so forth. There are many issues. Now, I'm not saying that any other nation is perfect either. And there must definitely uh, are great aspects about living in the UK and living in the US, let's say. But I speculate as to if young people are going to recognize this high inflation, they're going to recognize the high taxation, they're going to recognize the incompetence of leaders, and they're going to leave. Specifically those who are smart and have businesses within the cyber economy. I really think this is an issue. I just think the way work is, is changing massively. This is mainly due to the information age, in which is an age characterized by the cyber economy and the cyberspace. The cyberspace and the cyber economy is going to be an economy which is far greater than the US and China combined, I reckon. Uh, and I really do believe this because it gives you so much freedom. It's liberating. It gives you leverage. I mean, I think we're just entering into this phase now. So what are the issues with national debt and should you be concerned? Well, national debt is a cause for concern for two main reasons. Firstly, it raises the probability of a default. And secondly, has stark implications for US leadership and national security. Moreover, heavy government spending that has driven up the debt has also stoked inflation to historic highs, threatening to make inflation more than a transitory phenomenon. And the massive amount of borrowing by the US government has led to a fierce debate over the threat of a default. The credit of the US has been built on centuries of commitments with no defaults to date. But the $29 trillion plus national debt has raised the threat of default higher than ever, with total public debt as a percentage of GDP standing at an astonishing 122.5% of the Q3 2021. It's probably much higher now, uh, as we can see. Now, obviously, I mean, the capabilities and the probability of the US defaulting on the debt is very low, but th theoretically it could happen. And the national debt basically has major implications, I, I would say, from a geopolitical stance in which it can undermine the status of the US as a global leader through what is called as crowding out of investments. And this effect happens when a government's large debt raises the interest rates and reduces the amount of funds available for private investments. And furthermore, the crowding out effect can also impact military, diplomatic and humanitarian projects around the world. So when it comes to things like climate change, which I don't really buy into, if I'm totally frank, I'm not going to do a whole speech on this now, but I dispute the change climate change. 
And I question as to if uh, increased CO2 in the atmosphere is actually bad in consideration of the, of the 40% greening fertilizer effect. 40% greening has happened since the 1940s, thanks to increased carbon dioxide within the atmosphere, so on and so forth. You can read and listen to my commentary on climate change another time. But if we are going to do these philanthropic, lovely projects, if we're going to solve the climate, if we're going to do all of these great expensive things, then how are we going to do it? Who is making the money? Where is the money coming from? And when you think about the debt crisis and the amount of debt and the interest necessary to repay the debt, I think it's just comical beyond belief that people really believe that we're going to, you know, solve the hypothetical climate emergency by pouring billions and millions of, I said trillions actually, tens of trillions of dollars into intermittent, unreliable, dilute, solar and wooden energy. And I just think it's a big issue. The crowding out effect reduces investments for crucial areas like infrastructure, education and research, which can create a considerable drag on the economy. And overall, the level of interest rates caused by the government's large debts can impact the nation's industries and overall economy, all of which undermine the status of the US as a global leader. And the large national debt has major implications for national security. High debt services costs could lead to cuts in spending for defense and other national security concerns. Driving up investments, driving up interest rates results in high taxes and can retard economic growth. And lower defense spending would also decrease the US influence in international affairs undermine the confidence among allies and reduce the ability of the US to respond to national security crises. And additionally, the, and additionally, the impact of burgeoning national debt on the US economy standing could lead to a rise on, uh, within the influence of rivals, particularly China. And moreover, especially due to rising geopolitical tensions resulting from the ongoing war within Ukraine, security could be seen as a rising priority around the world. So overall, that was Stan Miller's commentary on the US debt crisis and the amount of interest in which is going to be paid in the future, in which he believes is a big concern for investors and for business personnel, and fundamentally the security and the leadership of the US within the future. And what does this mean for repayability? What does this mean for taxation? And it's not painting a very optimistic picture. There is one, I would say, golden ticket if you could put it that way, in relation to repayability of the debt, and that is productivity improvements. Because the fundamental question is as to if the debt of today is going to be outpaced by the growth of tomorrow. And productivity, perhaps even artificial intelligence, let's say, could be that driving factor, enabling increased economic growth within the future, as people such as ARK Invest, Kathy Wood, she notes that she believes innovation is going to cause a 30% plus annual growth rate within GDP, which is just unprecedented from the current kind of 2 to 3% in which we commonly have. So unless we have mass economic growth, be prepared, my friends, for high taxation, for cutting spending in fundamental areas, and shifting spending too. Uh, but, but obviously, all of those are very pessimistic pictures uh, in, in which are being painted as we speak.